Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. Our topic today is industrial real estate. We'll get a look at property level performance trends. We'll also look at investment opportunities and discuss tenant strategies. Plus, we'll look into the show's crystal ball at the future of industrial real estate in the U.S. Please welcome my first guest, Ryan Severino, Senior Economist and Associate Director of Research with Reese. Ryan is also a professor at Columbia University and NYU. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Hello, Michael. Thanks for having me back. My uh, my pleasure as always. Well, we always appreciate having you on. Your uh, your view of the, of the world and the U.S. Uh, real estate market is always interesting, and you know, and I think industrial real estate is particularly interesting uh, at, at these at this juncture. I mean, we've got online sales uh, increasing, and and other aspects that seem to to favor industrial real estate. So how did the first quarter perform in the U.S. on a, on a property level basis? Yeah, so far, we continue to see the slow but steady pace of improvement in both of the major subsectors of the industrial market. So for warehouse distribution, vacancy fell by 10 basis points to about 11.5% during the first quarter. And that rate of vacancy compression was more or less in line with what we've seen over the last year or so. Effective rents grew by about 0.7% during the quarter, which is a slight acceleration uh, versus what we've seen in recent quarters. And it's actually the best quarterly result that we've seen since the second quarter of 2012. So a little bit uh, of time there. For the flex R&D subsector, vacancy fell by about 20 basis points to 13.4% during the quarter. So that's still a bit above uh, you know, where warehouse distribution vacancy is. But uh, effective rents grew by about half a percent, and that's the strongest quarterly growth rate that we've seen since the market started to recover in earnest in uh, about 2012. So definitely heartening signs coming from both subsectors of the industrial market. You know, that's good news for the economy and, and jobs and certainly industrial real estate. Are there, are there certain areas of the country or certain size or class of properties that seem to be outperforming others? You know, I would say uh, in terms of size, what we've seen is really uh, the larger sort of mega box distribution centers uh, have been the ones that have been recovering the strongest. And not surprisingly, you, one tends to find those in the major distribution hubs around the country. So we've seen places like Chicago performing well, Atlanta performing well, Houston performing well, uh, Inland Empire, Riverside, San Bernardino performing well. And so that's really where we've seen uh, some of the strongest performance. Okay. And let's talk about the investment market. I mean, with with industrial improving, it seems like investors are really interested in industrial properties. What do you see for sales volume in the first quarter of 2014 in cap rates? And, and what is the trend there compared to the recent past? You know, it, as always, we're still finalizing our data, but it, it takes a little bit longer than fundamentals because of getting the data from the non-disclosure states. But what I can tell you is that volume is definitely up over the first quarter of last year. Uh, and I'm pretty sure by the time we get all of the data in, it could be a meaningful increase versus last year. And, and this really makes sense. As investors realize that the apartment sector is probably a bit past peak, they're training their sites on other property types. And industrial has relatively attractive fundamentals that are continuing to improve because of all the drivers that you'd mentioned. Uh, and cap rates aren't as tight as they are for some of the other major sectors, especially the apartment sector. And so what we've seen with cap rates is that they've continued to drift downward into, you know, the mid-sevens on a one-year rolling basis. Hmm, that's interesting. And that's for the core larger assets? Um, I mean, that's you know, it, it, it's 
really a blend of the market, but I would say most of the transaction activity that we've seen has been predominantly for uh, the core larger assets. So that's certainly having an impact on the overall market. I would argue if you're looking at, you know, sort of core plus to, to value-add type assets, you know, there's definitely a cap rate spread there, probably uh, 100 to 200 basis points, depending upon what metro area you're interested in looking at. Okay. And we're talking with Ryan Severino with Risa about the U.S. industrial market. And, and Ryan, what do you think about cap rates moving forward? I mean, we have uh, interest rates that may increase a little bit, right? Uh, we have fundamentals that are approving. So what do you think about cap rates moving forward in the industrial sector? You know, I actually uh, I expect them to continue to drift downward over at least the next few years. Contrary to popular opinion, there really is not a one-to-one translation between interest rates and cap rates. Empirical research actually shows that there's usually a negative correlation or no correlation between interest rates and cap rates because interest rates are just a subcomponent of the opportunity cost of capital, which is really just one of the three main components of cap rates. And of course, interest rates tend to rise as the economy improves, but that also means that fundamentals should improve along with the economy. And as they do, the other two main components that drive cap rates, NOI growth and risk premiums, should move in a positive direction, meaning as NOIs continue to grow, people are willing to pay more for building with growing incomes than flat or declining incomes, so that puts downward pressure on cap rates. And as the economy improves and fundamentals improve, uh, people feel uh, relatively more heartened about the state of the market, risk premiums tend to compress, and that also puts downward pressure on cap rates. So we, we likely have at least a few years before we really have to worry about rising cap rates. So I would say for all the listeners out there that are a little bit concerned about the, uh, the impact of rising interest rates on cap rates, I would say we probably don't have much to worry about for at least the next few years. And also, I guess some of that is uh, controlled by how high interest rates or how, how fast they rise, right? So if they rise very quickly, I guess that, that's out the window, right? Yeah, I think that's, that is, a, is always the concern. If interest rates increase faster than the improvement that we're seeing in fundamentals uh, and, and risk premiums. But what I would say, if you look at the data historically, even when we've seen uh, temporary spikes, like we saw uh, around May, June last year when Chairman Bernanke came out, uh, and said that the Fed was going to consider tapering, and then the bond market you know, basically vomited all over itself, and then spreads and, and rates really widened out. That tends to be more the exception than the rule in periods like this. And so while uh, I would say if we have more of those, it certainly makes it more problematic for cap rates going forward. But if you look at the data empirically, those tend to be relatively few and far between. So let's keep our fingers crossed that we've kind of gotten that out of our system and we don't have too many, uh, too many shocks like that left uh, for interest rates going forward for the next couple of years. Yeah, my fingers are crossed, and I, I agree. Hopefully the inc- increases are, are steady and slow. So, you know, obviously investors should look carefully at individual REITs or partnerships or individual properties they're investing in. But, but based on what you're saying about improvements in fundamentals, uh, cap rates may be compressing slightly uh, over the next couple of years, I guess uh, you're bullish on the industrial market. Yeah, I would say, uh, sorry, I would say absolutely. I think, uh, I think you know, my position on it is that uh, whereas apartment has been the darling of commercial real estate for the last three or four years, I think most people in the marketplace would concede that its best days are in the rearview mirror at this juncture. Uh, retail tends to be a little bit of a laggard because unless, unless we're discussing the real high-end centers, most of the retail market continues to struggle with, with uh, the near uh, absence of demand, whereas industrial is kind of in that sweet spot. Uh, fundamentals have only really started to recover over the last 
year or two, and I would say, uh, you know, using the baseball game analogy, we're probably only in the second, maybe third inning uh, of a recovery at this point, so there's still a lot of room left to run for fundamentals recovery. Capital is only, uh, over the last six to 12 months, really started probing the sector a little bit, and so I'd say uh, there, are, there are definitely opportunities for people out there interested in the sector right now. Okay. And who are those people that are interested? Who's buying industrial real estate in the U.S. today? You know, lately we've seen some pretty big institutions out there making fairly sizable bets on the sector. You know, the, the two names uh, that spring to mind you know, immediately are number one is Blackstone, which bought a portfolio worth about $550 million from GE fairly recently. They now own roughly 100 million square feet of space. So uh, they're pretty bullish on the sector, and I'd say they've been a fairly successful investor in commercial real estate uh, over the course of of their lifespan. The other uh, that I was thinking of is Liberty Property Trust. Over the last couple of quarters, they've really positioned themselves to capitalize on the recovery in industrial, especially warehouse distribution space. They've been selling office and even flex properties as they position themselves to become, uh, you know, a pure industrial player. So certainly there are some pretty big sharks that are circling the market these days as we move on to sort of a, a post-apartment world. And I think that's a fairly, uh, that's a fairly decent harbinger of, of where I think attitudes toward the space uh, will be over the next couple of years. Okay. We're short on the break, Ryan, and we want to talk to you in the next segment if you have a minute. But where do you see opportunities for investors in the industrial sector? You know, if you have the stomach for it, it seems as if demand right now is, is outpacing new supply for those mega box centers that I'd mentioned before. You know, the real big monolithic, a million square feet, 1.2 million square feet centers. However, you know, one really has to have the stomach for development because centers of this size with, with certain specifications, you know, they didn't really exist just a few years ago. So the inventory from before then isn't just uh, unpalatable to a lot of today's more e-commerce-centered users, it's really functionally obsolete. And so uh, all of the development that we're seeing, almost all of the demand that we're seeing is really for these uh, mega box centers. So there are definitely opportunities out there for for people who have the stomach for, for that kind of development. All right, stay tuned. More on the industrial market. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate-related topics, check out our on-demand show podcast at our new website. Uh, there are recent shows on tips for using LinkedIn. It's a great show on uh, Twitter. And then updates on the major sectors like office and multifamily. So grab your phone, tablet, or computer. Visit iTunes or the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're talking about the industrial market. My guest is Ryan Severino with Reese. And, and Ryan, I'd like to ask you about, you know, what's, what's happening, what's causing all these issues in the in industrial market. And uh, before we get there, you know, when you, when you look at the first quarter numbers and you look at the trends, are there anything that kind of jumps out at you that uh, people should be aware of? You know, it, it was a little bit surprising, though not 
completely illogical to see some smaller markets perform well in the first quarter. I think in particular, you know, markets that have good air and rail linkages to the country's logistics network, places like Memphis uh, and Kansas City, were among the top ten in rent growth on a year-over-year basis. And they don't usually show up on a lot of radar screens, but they really performed well because they are literally so well connected. I know it's a bad joke, but I think for anybody out there who is interested in industrial but doesn't feel like uh, they can necessarily play in the big primary institutional markets, you know, maybe take a look at, at some of those well-connected markets like Memphis and Kansas City. They might actually surprise you. All right. Well, that's great. A good opportunity there. And let's talk about some of the other factors that are really affecting this industrial market. Uh, is there an effect yet, or is it in the future, about the widening of the Panama Canal? You know, I think the thing to me that's interesting about the widening of the canal is that everybody knows that it's coming, but uh, at last check, the only two ports on the East Coast that really have positioned themselves well to capitalize it are sort of Port Elizabeth up near New York City and then Miami in terms of dredging to the appropriate depths to support ships of that size. I think the rest of the markets on the East Coast are probably a bit behind where they hope to be in terms of readiness. I mean, even Port Elizabeth in New Jersey, they have to raise the Bayonne Bridge uh, in order to get the ships underneath it. And so I would say it's an interesting phenomenon because everybody knows this is going to occur, uh, but it doesn't seem like there's quite the urgency that I, I would have expected from ports that could potentially capitalize on this. And so I think everybody is getting ready for this, but uh, probably not at the pace that I would have expected if you had asked me about this a couple of years ago. Okay. And what about the growth in emerging markets around the world? How is that affecting industrial in the U.S.? You know, what is interesting about that is we're really seeing this continued shift of manufacturing activity to other parts of the world. And even in places like China, where labor has gotten expensive over the last 10 to 12 years, you just see the manufacturing activity being shifted to another part, uh, right now at least, of developing Asia, where labor costs are lower. And I think what, what is good about that is it keeps the flow of goods, uh, unless you're rooting for the United States to have a sort of tighter uh, trade gap, uh, it keeps the flow of goods coming to the traditionally strong port markets where you know we have seen this inflow of goods coming from Asia for the last few decades. And so what it really does is it shifts some of the manufacturing uh, in terms of where, where the products are being produced, but it doesn't really disrupt the demand channels that people have gotten used to over the last few decades. And we're talking with Ryan Severino with Risa related to factors affecting the industrial market in the U.S. And you're talking about manufacturing overseas. And we hear that there's manufacturing kind of coming back and starting to look back uh, at the U.S. Are you seeing that in the industrial real estate numbers? Absolutely. Uh, I, I, you know, I think the, in the popular media, they might be overstating it a little bit. But what we are seeing is that manufacturing activity is coming back to the United States for a few main reasons. Number one, as I mentioned, labor costs uh, in places like China, where a lot of U.S. manufacturing uh, had, had offshore to over the last, say, 10 to 12 years, is not as cheap as it once was. Number two, energy costs, which means transportation costs, are not as cheap as they were 10 to 12 years ago when, when everyone started uh, to think about offshoring. And number three, I think what some organizations have realized is that it's not always the best idea in terms of operational performance to not only have your operating uh, capacity on the other side of the world away from you know your engineers and design people but to also have 
the people doing the manufacturing speaking a different language from the people who are doing the engineering and designing. And so what we've seen over the last few years is that we have seen the return of manufacturing to the United States, especially uh, in the right-to-work states, predominantly in the South, where uh, organizations have been willing to come in, uh, set up a plant. Now, certainly they're not, uh, this isn't a panacea, they're not hiring uh, and the same numbers of jobs that have been lost, certainly over the last few decades with the offshoring phenomenon. But um, what is good about this is that this is part of the labor market in the U.S. that we have probably neglected for too long. I think uh, the understanding for most people is that, you know, you either aspire to the corner office and you go on to undergrad or graduate school, uh, you know, and you shoot for the stars, or you don't go to college, and then you're sort of relegated to some, some uh, lower-level uh, service sector occupation, there are a lot of jobs in in between those two extremes that we've really just neglected, and I think the return of this kind of manufacturing to the U.S. Uh, as these organizations come in and they they partner with you know local colleges and community colleges that they're working on training a part of the labor force that you know we really have ignored for too long in the U.S. And I'd say that's not just good for the industrial market, but that's really good for the state of the economy overall. And what else is uh, driving this? desire to move manufacturing back to U.S.? Is it, is it energy costs? Is it rising labor costs overseas? Uh, you know, what are some of the other factors, and, and how, how rampant do you think it's going to be? I mean, are we going to have a lot of uh, jobs in that area in the U.S. expand over the next several years? You know, it is all of those fa- You know, it, it's certainly all of those factors, but what I would say is, in addition to those factors, I think organizations have, have realized that you know, American workers are are very, very skilled, some of the most skilled around the world. And they're, everyone has bought into this mythology over the last few decades that, you know, we, we aren't able to compete because of labor costs. But, you know, you've heard of this place called Germany, right? In Europe, they're a manufacturing and export powerhouse. Unit labor costs in Germany are actually higher than they are in the United States. So why does Germany produce such high-value-add goods that the world just can't get enough of? And it's because their workers are so productive and that will, people are willing to pay for that value add. And so I think now that we've realized that it's not just a function of cost, it's, it's you know, what that cost gets you, organizations are saying, hey, you know, we can actually train these workers to be very high value add, high productivity, produce a lot of high quality goods that not just American consumers will buy, but uh, international consumers will buy. And, and, I, and as I said, I don't think it's a panacea, but I think this could be... Uh, really targeting part of the labor market that has been ignored for too long. And I think it presents an opportunity for people uh, beyond just the bifurcation of either you have to go to college and or graduate school or, you know, you're relegated to the lower levels of the labor market. And I, I think going forward, it presents a lot of compelling opportunities for people who, you know, are equivocating a little bit. They're on the fence about going forward to higher education or, or uh, you know, going into an occupation that maybe doesn't require necessarily a four-year degree or a Ph.D. in physics. And I, I, I think that's a very, very heartening sign. Yeah, yeah, those are good signs. Well, Ryan, thanks for joining us today. We sure appreciate you being with us. Oh, my pleasure as always, Michael. Thank you for having me back on. And if you like more from Ryan and Reese, visit Reese.com. Well, stay tuned. We're going to have more on the industrial market. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. You're invited to experience ICSC Recon in Vegas in person or virtually. The Commercial Real Estate Show will be there May 18th to 20th as an ICSC media partner. Look for us there and catch the video interviews real-time at commercialrealestateshow.com. 
www.francemedia.com. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404 832 8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. You know, we do appreciate hearing from you. If you have any comments or questions, reach out to us by social media, email, phone, or smoke signals. Yeah, they'll work, right? I'm Chief Sitting Bull over here, right? You can smoke signals to me. You can access our contacts at our new website, commercialrealestateshow.com, and do check out the new website. Incredible content there. You're welcome to share it with your friends and followers. Today, we're exploring logistics, investments, and tenant strategies related to industrial real estate. Please welcome my next guest, Larry Callahan, Chief Executive Officer with Patillo Industrial Real Estate. And they have built and designed over a 1,000 industrial buildings, and they own over 20 million square feet throughout the southeast. Larry, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here, Michael. Well, we sure appreciate it. Uh, your, your insight is, is always interesting on the industrial market uh, throughout the U.S. And, uh, and I'd like to ask you about some of the uh, trends and, and logistics that you see around the country that are coming from the increase in online sales. I know I've heard in the past from you that, you know, that that's growing, and, but the online sales continues to grow. What's happening out there? Well, if you had to characterize it, one of the things you're seeing is a move uh, from retail space into industrial space. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of things, uh, most things, all used to be purchased at the retail level in a mall or in some sort of a retail store. And more and more, uh, you're finding people sitting at home or on their iPhone um, making their purchase. And what really happens is something comes out of an industrial warehouse and UPS delivers it to your door. That's a very different world. So you're seeing tremendous growth uh, in that area. In the last few years, Amazon has built about 30 million square feet of uh, distribution buildings across the country. Um, And that's, you know, it's it's a big driver of activity. Uh, Home Depot, big retailer, is building three new retail places in the United States, and that's not a lot of new retail locations uh, in the 2014 year. Uh, But they're doing a major restructuring of their supply chain uh, in large part driven by wanting to serve the online market. So uh, the world is shifting. It always, it never stays the same. There's always something different going on. Uh, But clearly one of the big trends is Uh, more and more things uh, being purchased by people without ever having to actually walk into a retail location. So you're still seeing the uh, large facilities being built near these major cities and arteries uh, for these uh, online uh, deliveries? Uh, That is the most active part of the market. Mm -hmm. It has been, and that's been in many locations, especially the major distribution locations Mm -hmm. in the country. Uh, That's what they've been seeing um, is activity in the 500,000 square feet or up uh, range. Uh, that's been the first part of the market that came back and been the strongest part. And you're now starting to see um, uh, speculative construction. Uh, I think in your last segment, Ryan Severino mentioned that if you were really aggressive, you might consider uh, trying, to, trying to do something to accommodate this demand uh, for huge boxes. And I'll say that there are places like Dallas, Texas, where right now there's about four uh, industrial buildings of around a million square feet that are speculative that are going up because they know the demand is so strong in that range. So 
you know that's that's a lot and it's a lot in one location too if you mm-hmm. uh, listen to the reports right now of what's going up nationally uh, there are about 17 planned buildings in the United States over a million square feet going up right now in the industrial segment four of them are in Dallas and four of them are speculative <laughs> so people are betting that there's going to be continued demand in this segment of the market. And are those uh, tenants uh, always leasing or, or sometimes they uh, build the suit for for these tenants? Uh, a good number of them are build a suit um, and uh, most of them do want to lease. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that does create the investment asset that a lot of people are trying to, trying to buy right now. Uh, somebody will come in and, and need a large asset, have strong credit behind it and commit for a long time. You know, that's the investment asset that is most in demand right now. And how long are these leases typically on these million-dollar boxes? Uh, you're usually not going to get one less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, better to go 15. Yeah, yeah. 10 years seems short, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you've been around a long time, you know, when you first sign it up, you're thrilled that you get a 10-year deal and you blink your eye and 10 years is gone. <laughs> right. Yeah, time flies by when you're paying bills. Eh? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> so, so things are changing. And on these big boxes, um, you know, what are some other uh, aspects? We're short on the break here, but as far as ceiling heights and uh, uh, truck court sizes. Well, the truck courts keep getting deeper and deeper. There's a lot of, of storage at these, these locations. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, we own some buildings uh, that have truck courts as deep as 400 feet. Uh, for major retail distribution operation. So um, we, we're seeing much deeper truck courts, usually trucking on both sides of these type buildings. And the clear height of them, uh, you know, it's the modern building and industrial real estate that everyone talks about is 30 foot clear. Some of these major retail distribution buildings will get up to 40 foot clear height. Oh, interesting. Well, stay with us. We'll get the latest on the Savannah port deepening and how that's going to affect U.S. industrial real estate. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Florida International University. With FIU's Fast Track system, you can earn your master's in real estate in just 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUonline.com to learn more. That's FIUonline.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We have some great shows coming up for, uh, for you, including next week, a show on mixed-use development, which should be very interesting. Don't miss a show of special value for you. Sign up for a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're exploring the logistics, investments, and tenant strategies related to industrial real estate with Larry Callahan with Patillo Industrial Real Estate. And, and Larry, we've heard that the uh, deepening of the uh, Savannah port is going to change a lot of the way logistics is done in, in the U.S. We hear it's funded. We hear it's not funded. We hear it's going to happen. We hear it's not funded. What is the latest? Well, the Savannah Port is one of the major ports in the United States. It's the fourth largest container port. And the reason people are focused on the Port of Savannah, uh, Port of Charleston, uh, and the ports along the East Coast from New Jersey all the way down to Miami is that the Panama Canal is going to be uh, widened, and they're going to greatly increase the capacity of the ships that can go through that that port. And um, Savannah is one that people are focused on because all the 
uh, wrangling that has to take place in order to be able to do that kind of work, uh, environmental issues and working with Corps of Engineers. There's agreement that has all been reached on that. And there was an expectation that we were about to fund that expansion um, back at year end. Now, unfortunately, the federal government uh, is sort of tight with money right now, and uh, that did not occur uh, right at year end. So um, it's still up in the air exactly when the funding will come from the federal side of this. The state of Georgia has already allocated $231 million uh, to that uh, deepening and expansion project uh, for the Port of Savannah. Uh, but the total project is a $652 million project. So there is a significant amount of federal funding that needs to come along. And, um, you know, even in an era where things are tight, there still are legitimate uses of, you know, the federal um, government activity and powers. Um, and the Port of Savannah is a port that um, doesn't just serve the Savannah area or the Savannah region. Uh, it, it serves more than the state of Georgia. The, Things that come out of that port go to as far away as Orlando, Birmingham, uh, Memphis, Charlotte. Uh, so the rail connections that come out of there are pretty significant. So this is a project that affects the whole southeast United States. Uh, and the same will be true for the port of Charleston. That won't just affect the Charleston area. Uh, so there are deepening projects and, um, that, that need to occur. They are not yet funded, and uh, it's actually going to be very important to get the maximum benefit out of the um, widening of the Panama Canal, we have to do these improvements at the port. Now, the Panama Canal was supposed to uh, be complete, the expansion, by 2014, which is this year, <laughs> and it's been delayed. Uh, the latest report I've heard is 2015. Um, you know, we'll know it when we see it, but um, it, if you're not ready for it, it will go to the places that are ready. And right now, the deepest ports on the East Coast are uh, Miami has done some work. Um, New Jersey and uh, Hampton Roads, Virginia, are all deep enough to accommodate these big boats. If it's going to come to the others and get the benefits spread to the consumers all over the United States, uh, these port projects need to be finished. And what about the funding then? You know, so the funding is really not there uh, to deepen the port of Savannah, right? Um, it hasn't been approved yet. Yeah. Um, you know, the U.S. government is running a deficit, so uh, yeah. a lot of things that we're spending money on right now, um, you know, are above and beyond what we're taking in as a as a nation. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes you have to do things to build for the future. So, what are people, what are guys in your in your industry saying? Is it feel like it's going going to happen, or is it going to be delayed? Or I think it is such a clear benefit to uh, the people of the United States that I think it will happen. The reports show that um, for every dollar that's spent on that deepening, the economic benefit to the United States will be $5.5, and that's a very strong cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. So I think it's a matter of politics, and when the politics uh, align, the economics say do it. Right, right, that makes sense. Well, tell us about the aspects of onshoring, and we briefly talked, touched base with it, uh, with Reese about it, with Ryan Severino about onshoring, people bringing back manufacturing. Is it really happening? I mean, you're, you're on the ground level here talking to these big companies in the U.S. Uh, is, is it really happening? Uh, the short answer is yes, mm -hmm. uh, it is. Uh, we're not in a tidal wave of it yet, but it is mm -hmm. starting to come this way. And Ryan, I think, did a good job of identifying a lot of the reasons why it is happening. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I talked recently um, 
with uh, Jeffrey Immelt, who's the guy that runs uh, as the CEO of uh, General Electric. Uh, happened to have an opportunity to talk to him for a few minutes, and um, at that point, they had just announced that they were moving uh, General Electric's manufacturing of appliances back to the United States. Kentucky, in particular, is where they went. And I told him, I said, well, you know, that's going to be something that's going to be, you know, very favorably looked on by a lot of people, uh, the jobs creation and the investment. Uh, did General Electric do that because of the optics of it that it would look good and feel good? And he said, absolutely not. We did it because we are, we're in the job, our business is, to try to deliver the lowest possible cost product uh, to the customers that we're serving. And the best place in the entire world to um, build their product and deliver it to U.S. customers is right there in Kentucky. So the economics that drove people to take things to uh, China uh, are changing. And there are um, changes in labor cost, and the, the differential is the issue. Mm -hmm. And the differential is not as great as it used to be. Uh, the language issues are significant. The travel that takes to get over there, the pollution that exists um, in the air when you're there, um, and electrical availability and cost here are very competitive on the international scale. So I think you're going to see more of that. Okay. Well, you heard it here. Uh, U.S. companies can now manufacture in the U.S., bring it back, bring the jobs back here. Well, stay tuned. We're going to have some tips for tenants. And, uh, gentlemen, if you're already running a company, stay tuned. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by RealCrowd. RealCrowd lets you invest directly into shares of cash-flowing real estate with low investment minimums and the ease of investing online. Visit realcrowd.com slash radio. That's realcrowd.com slash radio. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Do you have any commercial real estate questions? Well, if you do, we'd like to get them from you. Each business day, I answer a question on a video. We post it to the Twitter account, Ask Michael Bull, and the show show's website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Look for the tab, Answers. Well, today we're exploring industrial real estate with Larry Callahan with Patillo. And, and Larry, what about let's talk about tenants. If you're running a, a company right now, use industrial space, uh, what are some things you would tell tenants and some uh, tips? I think I'd tell them to operate with a sense of urgency because um, you know the, the real estate market was hit pretty hard in, in 2008 and there was a lot of vacancy that occurred and uh, the fact that there was so much available on the market pulled down the asking rates and encouraged people to give a lot of concessions and give people a lot of opportunities and options uh, in their space. And everybody in the real estate business uh, wants to be accommodating of their customers, but um, they tend to be just a little more accommodating when there's a lot of vacancy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, and that's changing. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, been a spotty recovery. And some places have obviously recovered a lot quicker than other places. Yeah, and, and you're running a business, you're not in the real estate world, so you may think about the market still being kind of down, and you may have some shocks when you get out there. Well, you're going to be shocked in a couple of regards. One is because it's not as much available as it used to be, yeah. particularly in the size ranges that people are really focused on. Mm -hmm. The average industrial building that's been built in the United States uh, since 2007 is right about 200,000 square feet. And if you go to the major distribution markets, the average building is even bigger than that. 
So if you're a customer, a large customer in particular, that's looking for the modern distribution building, you know, a 500,000 square feet or even a million square foot building, in many markets it simply doesn't exist. So you're going to have to be building it. Mm-hmm. And there was a down period as far as um, the uh, existing space being available in large quantities in a lot of places. But there was very little downturn in the cost of building. And the cost of building is starting to creep up, and it could surge as the market starts returning and spaces start filling up. So the new building that you're looking at may be more expensive than you thought, and it's going to be less expensive right now than it's going to be a year or two from now. So if there's a a bargain in the market that suits your needs, now's the time to jump on it. And you might be wanting to think about long-term commitments on it because the market is turning uh, more and more in favor of uh, the landlords. And it's been very much a buyer's market for an extended period of time. Yeah, and like you said, there's a lot of reasons. You got land costs that are increasing. You got construction costs that are increasing. Um, and you have more demand from other tenants, so you're going to see rents increasing. So, uh, if you're a, if you have a lease coming up in the next several years, you may want to get out in front of that, and uh, and, and and do it now. And we're short on the end of the show here, but uh, some of these users on the on the smaller properties, say the the fifty thousand square foot and things, uh, are some of them uh, buying as well. Yeah, exactly. And, th- and that 50,000 mm-hmm. is a good one to think about because the average industrial building in some of the major markets is closer to 50,000 than it is to the, the mm-hmm. 200, is, which is what's getting built. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're seeing is um, there has been a slow recovery in the smaller spaces. Mm-hmm. The thing that has been missing has been the entrepreneurs mm-hmm. uh, starting new businesses. Uh, the big activity has recently been in the very large companies building very large distribution. We're now starting to see the entrepreneurs come back. Mm -hmm. And when we see them come back, we don't just see them uh, interested in that scale of building. We're also seeing them wanting to buy those buildings. So a lot of that is happening, and it's fueled also in part by the fact that banks are willing to lend to user occupants. So the companies are starting to form. They're starting to grow. They're starting to believe in the future. The banks are providing them with funding. So uh, we are seeing that segment grow. Well said, Larry. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Glad to be a part of it. I think it is a great time for a company, some companies, to buy. Well, thanks for joining us this week, and please join us next week. We can talk about mixed-use developments. So thanks for joining us. I'm Michael Bull. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Atlanta Office Liquidators, new and used furniture liquidators, France Media, publications and conferences, and Bull Realty Commercial Brokerage, a great place to do business. For more information on these companies or to access additional podcasts, videos, or blogs, visit commercialrealestateshow.com.